Do I need the mic? I cannot use it. All right. Um, so thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. We, it, for those of us uh, in the audience who are going to speak at points, um, to let us know up here that you're going to speak, you just press the button on your mic, and then um, Charlene here will um, turn your mic on. Um, do we have any other notes before we just do the usual? Okay. So... Um, do we have anybody else? We have one registrant for public comment. Do we have any others? Going once, going twice. All right. And with that, I call this meeting to order. Um, let's see. So we'll start with the approval of minutes from the May 14, 2015 meeting. I'll entertain a motion to do so. Just press it once again. I move to approve the minutes from our previous meeting. Mayor second. Just yelled out. Adam's got a second. All right. Those in favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed? Hearing none. Any abstentions? Hearing none. Motion passes. Um, all right. So now we'll move into the public comment portion of the evening. And do you want to introduce the person? Or do I do it? I'd have to do it. That's not how the mayor does it. Anyway, okay, so um, I have Linda Ketchum here to speak on um, in opposition of agenda item number uh, 37861, which is actually agenda number uh, five. Thank you. Sit down. Yeah, sit down. So my name is Linda Ketcher. I'm the Executive Director of Madison Area Urban Ministry, and I am here to speak in opposition to the proposed ordinance um, restricting residency of sex offenders. We have several concerns about the bill as it's written. First, it affects a very broad group of individuals. That's a very large classification sex offender. There are many individuals who fall under that category, even as child sex offender. We're concerned about the disparity impact. We've heard a lot of talk about equity statements in our city. What I haven't heard any conversation about the equity impact of such an ordinance on people of color when we have the racial disparities in arrest, incarceration, and conviction rate that we have in the, in the state and in, obviously, the city and county. Some of these individuals that we're talking about committed their crimes as children, and there's nothing in this ordinance that restricts the amount of time. This, as I read it, seems to be a lifetime ban. And at what point do we say we believe in forgiveness? At what point has someone served their sentence? At what point do we trust the individuals that we, we pay to work in the Department of Corrections who are assessing the risk and already examining and working with individuals who are being released in the community. And I know you're going to hear later from the Department of Corrections. We work very closely with the agents out of the Odana Road unit who supervise sex offenders in our community. They do a good job. We trust their assessment. These individuals already have restrictions on where they can live. We, you know, for us, this is a bit personal because I will guarantee you, I will, I will bet you a paycheck that if I did an address search for each of you and then went on the sex offender registry, I know someone who lives within a mile of your house. That's how many people we're talking about. So for us, it becomes very personal because this ordinance will make it much more difficult for us to do our job assisting individuals rebuilding their lives when they come back to the community from prison. These are real men and women. 
They're not obscure, kind of face blocked out on WKOW who likes to do that kind of thing. These are real men and women who are trying to rebuild their lives. We've told them we expect them to rebuild their lives. Let's not throw more barriers into their, in their way as they're trying to do that. In 2009, uh, the Colorado Department of Public Safety um, decide, discovered that as they were interviewing people, they were looking at this issue, imposing these types of restrictions, essentially put people in the position of dropping off the registry and going underground. That doesn't improve public safety. What improves public safety is knowing where people are living and having them being supervised by the Department of Corrections. A survey of Florida probation and parole officers found that they felt that these restrictions did nothing to improve public safety. It forced more people into the position of being homeless, into the homeless shelters, and in fact impaired their ability to find employment because people who are homeless have a more difficult time finding employment. It also is often uh, some of these restrictions make transportation, public transportation and use of it much more difficult. So as the Equal Opportunities Commission, I hope that we will consider the impact on employment search when we're talking about this type of restriction. These things connect. This is going to ripple out. A Department of Justice study found the same thing in looking at Missouri and Michigan's laws. They found that there, it impeded the ability of individuals to find employment based on transportation issues, based on location of jobs and housing. People that we work with typically use public transportation. They look for jobs within a reasonable distance of their, of their housing. And so if we're going to keep pushing housing out farther and farther, we have no regional transportation system. And the last thing, that Department of Justice study, I've yet to seen, see a study that indicates or proves that these restrictions increase public safety or reduce recidivism. And when we're talking about recidivism, in this case, I'm talking about commission of a new crime. What they did find in the Department of Justice study was an increase in return to prison rates for individuals based on technical violations related to someone's inability to find housing and employment and support themselves. Not a new crime, but a technical violation. So instead of allowing individuals to be in the community and supervised, we're going to pay $38,000 a year to send them back to prison because we don't want them living in certain neighborhoods. So we strongly oppose the, this proposed ordinance. Um, I'm, I'm so happy that the Department of Corrections is here and that you'll have an opportunity to talk with them and learn more about what they're doing in the community. Um, and I hope that at some point you will come to one of the service fairs that we offer on the fourth third Tuesday of the month at Madison Area Urban Ministry at the, at the, the Villager Mall and meet some of the men and women that you're talking about here. 3.30, June 23rd. We'd love to have you come. I believe this month's theme, ironically, is housing. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. All right, I have uh, one more registrant to, to speak. Anita? And you're speaking in... Oh, I'm... Speaking on item five in favor of... It's on now. Hello? Okay. All right. 
Anyway, I thought I should uh, explain why I proposed this ordinance. It was following a meeting in which angry parents in what was on the north side reacted to a plan by the State Department of Corrections and Nehemiah to place up to nine sex offenders in an apartment building in a low-income area on West Carson's Drive. At an informational meeting in March at the Veracourt Neighborhood Center, parents who live in the area were particularly appalled when they were told that the first sex offender to be placed there, who had in the past violated children, would move in the next day. Parents were also angered when DOC representatives ironically started to tell them how to keep their children safe. Now, the landlord decided not to put that person there, but since other people have moved in, though I haven't been able to find out what their offenses were, their um, ex-offenders of some type. Now, that building, the apartment building on West Carson's, is within 1,200 to 1,300 feet of Mendota Elementary School, and there are already 24 sex offenders living within a mile of that school, including 18 who have offended children. Now, children in wealthier areas do not face such high numbers, as you will find out if you search the state sex offender registry. I hope you will. I consequently introduced the ordinance before you, which would prohibit child sex offenders from living within 2,000 feet of a school or community center. Offenders who already live in such locations would be exempted. I think this is a reasonable protection for low-income minority children in Madison because they're the ones affected by many of these placements. You may hear that most offenders who have violated children have done so with children they know. Well, it is possible to get to know other children, especially if that is where your interests lie. And I know that many of you deeply feel that you should protect downtrodden, but I believe that the children in poor minority areas are downtrodden. And if you have any questions, I'd be glad to answer. Thank you, Anita. So seeing no further uh, registrations for public comment, we'll move on in the agenda to the disclosures and recusals. Does anybody have any disclosures or recusals right now? I know that we have guests here from the PSRC. Did I get that right? Yes? Thank you. Looking <laughs> for someone to confirm I actually got the acronym right. I apologize if I got it wrong. Um, okay, so <clears throat> with no disclosures or recusals, We'll move on to item number five on the agenda, which is the um, referral from council about amending section 183 of the Mass General Ordinance to establish a child sex offender cannot reside within 2,000 feet of a school or community center and establish bail deposit schedule for violation thereof. Uh, so, yes, we'll move to that. Let's see. Who's presenting on this? Thank you. 
Good evening, everybody. I hope everybody can hear me. My name is Lance Wiersman. I'm from the Wisconsin Department of Corrections. I'm a regional chief uh, for the Division of Community Corrections, Region 1, and that area encompasses Dane Rock and Greene Counties. So basically what my job encompasses is I oversee probation and parole operations in the three counties, and I supervise the corrections field supervisors who supervise the probation and parole agents. Also with me tonight, I brought Eric Worslin, who is a corrections program supervisor. He works for the Sex Offender Registry Program, also commonly referred to as SORP. So Eric has a um, PowerPoint presentation that he's going to go through. I also wanted to introduce uh, William Lazar, Bill. He is a corrections field supervisor, and Tina Gensler, who is also a corrections field supervisor. Bill and Tina supervise probation and parole agents from our sex offender unit, uh, which is located on the west side of Madison. So we have a short presentation. I received some questions um, ahead of time, so we'll attempt to answer those. And uh, hopefully between our presentation and the questions, and if there's any other questions, um, we'd be happy to, to attempt to answer those. Um, first, before Eric starts, I just want to thank everybody for giving us the opportunity to, to uh, talk with you tonight. I'll turn it over here. Thank you, Lance. As Lance indicated, I'm with the Sex Offender Registry. I've been with the, the department for about 23 years now. Um, I know we have a limited time tonight because you have other agenda items that you want to talk about. So I'm going to go through a, a quick PowerPoint to give you some background information on the registry, where it came from. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, supervision aspects and a little bit about residency restrictions themselves, some of the evidence, some of the research that's out there. These three children are individuals who have really kind of given the United States its notification, its uh, sex offender registry and notification uh, process. Um, unfortunately, all, they're all victims. Jacob Beverly was a young uh, boy that was abducted, um, and as a result of the outrage by the community, got together, forwarded the information to the legislature, and eventually the uh, Jacob Betterling Act was passed, and that mandates registration in the United States. Megan Kanker was a, a young uh, a girl from the uh, state of uh, New Jersey um, who was sexually assaulted. Megan's law was then passed. That mandates registration and notification of, of offenders in the community. Wisconsin Registry was enacted in, in 1997 um, within the Department of Corrections. Uh, we have the Adam Walsh Federal Protection Act that was passed in 2006, and that, again, are all federal legislation that mandates notification and registration in, in the United States. Um, and uh, so our laws, 30145, at 440 is the, the statutes in Wisconsin that dictate registration and notification in the state of Wisconsin. The intent of the law in Wisconsin, and Wisconsin took its time when it passed those laws and looked at what other states were doing in terms of making sure that we got how we did our job correct and we were able to provide information. It's essential for providing community awareness and education. It's a big part of what we do as a registry. It also holds registrants accountable by removing that anonymity that they use and they function by um, as sex offenders. And so the registry and the information that we, we put out on the website is for the community. It's also for victims, and it's also used by law enforcement. So law was passed in June 1997. 
It includes individuals. It, now, it's retroactive back to 1993. It, it includes individuals that were convicted, adjudicated delinquent as, as minors, committed or in custody or on supervision. After that date, after that December 25th, 1993, if any of those things pertain to that individual, they were required to register. We also have individuals that are on our registry that come from other states, come from military court, or come from tribal court, sentenced, uh, convicted and sentenced. Uh, they come to uh, Wisconsin, and then they're placed on our registry. This is a list of the mandatory registrable offenses in the state of Wisconsin. Wisconsin ranks eighth in the nation in terms of the number of registrants that we have. In Wisconsin, you register for essentially two periods of time, lifetime and 15 years after discharge from supervision. There are some individuals who are convicted from other states, and they may be required to register for a period of 10 years after um, either placed on supervision or discharge from probation or parole. Two-thirds of the individuals in the state of Wisconsin are on lifetime registration. Second-degree sexual assault of the child is the... The, um, by far the statute that most individuals are convicted in the state. Registrant is, essentially the registry is, is a storehouse of information. We collect information from registrants. They provide, they're required by law to provide that information to us. It includes their residence, employment, volunteering, school, email and internet identifiers. And that information is then verified and sent to us. We collect it from registrants. We also get information from the public. We get information from law enforcement. We get information from victims. We have a number of different sources, uh, internet sources. Uh, we have a safe tip line where individuals can contact the registry with information. If there's information that somebody is violating those registry requirements, and it's a Class H felony in the state of Wisconsin, we have registration specialists who follow up and investigate those cases. And those changes must be reported within a 10-day period. So if somebody moves, they're required to notify us within 10 days of the change of residence. Just some, if you want to go and search the public website, these are the, the address or the email address. You can certainly contact us at any time if you have information or questions. A registration specialist or myself. I am a supervisor for the western half of the state of Wisconsin. We have another supervisor who is uh, located in Milwaukee. And, they, and she supervises the registration specialists on the eastern side of the state. There's also the National, Regi National Registry. And I would, I would suggest that everybody go to the website. It's a really good source of information. And not only about Wisconsin registrants, there are links to other um, websites to, um, to, get, to get information. This is a screenshot of our public website. You can see you can search by an individual's name. You can do a geographical search, and you can also sign up for community notifications. You can put in your address and your name, and if somebody moves within a geographical area, you will get an, an email notification. There's, there's uh, FAQs and resources and ways to contact the registry if you have information or questions. As I mentioned, we rank eighth in the nation in terms of registry. We have currently have 23,712. We have about 5,800 that are incarcerated, that are in prison. We have 50, almost 5,700 registrants that are on community supervision. That means they're on probation or parole supervision within the community. And we have another 12,200 that are off supervision. They're not terminated. They're terminated from supervision. So they've completed their sentence. They're not on probation or parole. 
Their only requirements are to the to the registry. They don't have probation or parole rules. They don't have an agent or appeal that's, follow, that, that's working on them, working on their case. And so that's the largest number. In Dane County, we have roughly 957. Again, these were yesterday's numbers. The thing that becomes most important when you think about those numbers, and again, how we rank nationwide, sexual assaults by nature are one of the most underreported crimes. The registry functions in the fact that it gives information to the public about those individuals. It shows the community, victims, law enforcement. It provides information to them so they can be aware of the situation. Again, we're taking that anonymity away from offenders. We know there's no typical sex offender. They come from all races, religions, socioeconomic groups. They've always been here. It's not until the registry went into effect that we were able to provide that information to the community as a community resource. As we mentioned, 85 to 90 percent of the sexual assaults go unreported. We also know that over 60 percent of the sexual assaults occur in the victim's home. And that 93 percent of the sexual assaults were committed by somebody known to the victim. That's a, a very large number. Oftentimes in the community, we hear on television about those individuals who abduct a child. No doubt that this is horrific. But again, we need to remember that we're taking that anonymity away by posting that information on the website and that the perpetrators, by a vast margin, are known to the victim. These are coaches, parents, aunts, uncles, someone known to the victim, somebody in the community. Okay, we talk about success factors, and we're going to talk a little bit about, um, about that on supervision and about the impact of residency restrictions. And so we'll come back to that success factor and some of the influences, some of the impacts that residency restrictions can have on an individual in terms of those success factors. And when we talk about success, we're not talking about, uh, you know, having a great car. We're talking about not reoffending. We're talking about not creating victims. That's what this registry is about, taking that anonymity away, providing information so the community can be safe, so we don't create any more victims. So we'll talk a little bit. Again, I know I'm moving very fast, and we'll have time. But I want to make sure we have plenty of time afterwards for questions and specific questions. So when you talk about residency restrictions, the initial intent is to protect children. That, there's that kind of innate, if we don't have sex offenders in our neighborhood, then we won't have sex offenses. It seems logical, but there are a number of, in, of unintended consequences as a result of residency restrictions and things that happen that far away any positive of, 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 a, of, a, um, of a residency restriction. So again, it's a noble intention. We're going to protect children. We're going to keep sex offenders out. But the problem is sex offenders can travel. They have cars. They're known to the victim. It's that, it's that great, much greater percentage of individuals who are known to the victim and, and, and who commit the sexual assaults within the victim's home. So that, doesn't so that doesn't necessarily work. Here's a sample of residency legislation, typically 1,000, 2,000 feet. We're going to keep sex offenders um, and not allow them to live. Unfortunately, as most sex offender residency restrictions that we have in the state of Wisconsin, they are different from community to community. They don't necessarily encompass everyone. Usually it's related to child sex offenders. And it prohibits, it's, it's, 
speak, see you and um, sure. hear you. Sure. I mean, I understand that they have TVs to watch, but it's really nice to be able to sit oh, here. Absolutely. And there's lots of open seats, so I'm just offering that as an invitation. Pardon me? Uh, we're going to take questions at the end. So if you have questions, please uh, write them down. We'll be more than happy to, to, to answer them. Okay. We'll keep going forward then. So let's talk a little bit about those negative consequences, those unintended consequences of residency restrictions. First of all, what we find is that the research indicates that individuals who are not allowed to live within cities, they're pushed out into rural areas, they have a tendency to go underground because uh, we, you know, they, want to, they want to have access to transportation, to services, um, to mental health services, uh, access to probation parole. Um, they often they fail to return letters, they fail to provide information to us and fail to provide information to law enforcement. They don't tell us about where they're living, they don't tell us about where they're going to school, they don't tell us about whether they're volunteering. And again, the purpose of that registry is to provide information to the community. And if they don't have a place to live and they don't have a place to work, and it's a necessity that they do those things, and it's extremely important that they do those things because it really has an impact on their success, on their success in terms of not reoffending. A couple of examples in Iowa was one of the states, first states that put residence restrictions in. They had a 2,000-foot limit. Their noncompliance rate with their registry doubled, and there was no reduction in terms of the sex offenses that occurred. Florida created a, 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 a scenario of homelessness and, 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 and transients and clustering of offenders uh, essentially under the causeway. And so you have this whole community of individuals that were forced to live in tents, essentially homeless, under the causeway because that was the only place that they could reside. California, one of three offender parolees is homeless, three times higher than before the restrictions. Record, decades of criminal justice research indicates that stable family life, employment, access to services, stable home are essential for the success of individuals on supervision and off supervision. These individuals are coming out of the institution. These people are being placed on supervision, and it's, it's essential that we can supervise them, that they don't go underground, they don't disappear, that they can become productive members of society. I'm going to go through these very quickly. We've talked a little bit about it has a tendency to push offenders out of, out of communities, away from transportation, away from services, oftentimes into rural communities who don't have uh, the finances or the police force to, to properly monitor them. Again, then the Department of Corrections is unable. If they go underground, they stop reporting to be able to provide that information to the community. Those factors such as a supportive family, 
homelessness, transient. These are the things that force people and take the stability away that's necessary for them to be successful. Lynn County, Iowa, we talked a little bit about Iowa, about the changes that happened. Prior to their, the sex offender registry laws, they knew where 90% of the sex offenders were living. After that, they were lucky to know where 50% of them. A huge number of individuals had gone underground, disappeared. They didn't know where they were. They couldn't be supervised. Many communities in Wisconsin and in other states have home verification programs. The Department of Corrections works with law enforcement, do home visits. We work with the U.S. Marshals to ensure that individuals are living where they, they say they are. They're providing that information to us so we can provide it to victims, we can provide it to law enforcement, we can provide it to the community. The Iowa County Attorney Association, back from 2006, these are the district attorneys that are prosecuting sex crimes, and they're talking about these same problems. False reporting, not knowing law enforcement of changes, homelessness, transient, going underground. Again, we are unable to provide that information to the community when those things occur. Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault, again, more um, talk about Non-compliance rates in Iowa have doubled. Um, children are far more at risk by adults. They know than by strangers. And again, the stress of that transient, of not working, of not having services, that all has an effect on their success on supervision and off supervision. Sex offenders who continually move or become homeless as a result of residence restrictions are more difficult to supervise and monitor, therefore increasing their risk for reoffending. When individuals on supervision, and Lance will talk a little bit about those things, what that means, and what that supervision means, and how that creates stability, how they're involved, they can be involved in different types of treatment, how that lowers their risk of reoffending. 2011 U.S. Department of Justice study. Overall, the study finds that resident restrictions are passed in responsible competition. And not, and not high rates of sex crimes. The research doesn't support the notion that residency restrictions do what they are intended to do. Those unintended consequences far outweigh the positive. And, and quite frankly, I'm not sure there are any positives. Again, a 2013 study. Michigan and... and um, in Missouri, the prior speakers spoke about this study. I would strongly suggest that you take a look at some of the research out there. You can certainly Google it, Google sex offender registry restrictions, and there'll be a whole list of articles and research that's been conducted. I've been doing this for a number of years. I've been talking about residency restrictions back to 2006, 2007, and, and nothing's really changed in terms of what the research is saying. Again, the Colorado report, uh, the prior speaker talked a little bit about that. Does, does proximity to schools increase recidivism? Colorado found that molesters who reoffended while under supervision were randomly scattered throughout. Again, sex offenders have a, the ability to, to move. Residence restrictions don't prevent those kind of things. The unintended consequences are much greater than that. I'm going to let Lance talk a little bit about the supervision aspects. Uh, and then after that, we'll take some questions. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. So again, um, 
uh, threw a lot of information at you, relatively short period of time, so I hope you can digest most of it. I guess one thing, I, before I get into some of the questions that, that were sent to me ahead of time, one of the things we're trying to do tonight is separate the emotional issue from the, from the research. And when you talk about sex offenders and victimization, it's a very emotional inter, uh, issue for everybody. And a lot of times when, you know, these ordinances are well-intended because everybody wants to protect children. But what we're trying to present, at least tonight, is that we haven't found any evidence that these types of ordinances protect children, that these types of ordinance, ordinances prevent new sexual victimization. So, it, but it's very difficult when you're talking about I'm a parent, I have kids, I want to protect my kids, I want to do everything I can to protect my kids, and if I have an ordinance, then my kids are going to be protected. But what we found, or what we see, is that just gives people a false sense of security. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about sex offenders if we have an ordinance in my community. And that's really not the case. We always have to worry about sex offenders. We threw a lot of numbers at you. Um, the one number that we didn't throw at you are the people that haven't been convicted yet. And um, Eric mentioned the stat, I can't remember what it is, the percentage of uh, sexual assault crimes that go unreported. And that doesn't also include the number of sexual assault crimes that are reported, but for a variety of issues aren't able to be prosecuted or pled down to lesser offenses, where, which are not registrable. So again, a lot of information, and we'll be happy to answer questions, but I'll get to some of these um, that I was sent. Which sex offenders require notification for placement, specifically which offenses? Um, prior screen here, and I don't know if I can go back or not, um, there was a list of all the registerable offenses. That's also on our Department of Corrections Sex Offender Registry website. Um, Eric talked about second-degree sexual assault of a child, so there's first-degree sexual assault, second-degree sexual assault, first-degree sexual assault of a child. There's a whole laundry list of um, 40. 31 statutes that require, in Wisconsin, that require registration. There's also federal statutes that require registration as well, tribal and um, military courts that re, re, um, require registry. Um, why don't they have community meetings about placement before location is made? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about community notification. Um, what Eric didn't, he mentioned a little bit, but... Um, we didn't talk about special bulletin notifications. The special bulletin notifications are individuals who have been convicted of two separate registry violations. So, secondary sexual assault in 1994 and then something else later. So that person, that would be one person who would be subject to a special bulletin notification. I'm just going to read something here for you so I get it right. Um, the special bulletin notification is a process to alert law enforcement agencies about upcoming releases of certain sex offenders. So what we do when we know somebody who is subject to a special bulletin notification is being released from incarceration, being released from prison, we notify law enforcement. The law states 30 days prior to release. So there's a packet of information that talks about the offender, talks about their crimes, and also talks about their proposed residence. Um, SBNs are issued to law enforcement in the offender's plan area of residence, school, and employment. The process provides law enforcement with detailed, relevant information about a specific offender before the offender is released from incarceration or confinement back into the local community. So this is meant to be done prior to release. So 
um, law enforcement can decide what level of notification. Um, that process of deciding what level of notification, I'll go through the three levels in a minute, is done through a core team. A core team consists of community members, district attorney's office, victim advocate groups, law enforcement. Usually it's the chief of police or designee or the sheriff of the area of where the person is going to be released to. And then the Department of Corrections is able to provide some background information and also talk about the supervision plan. So we have... Um, three types of individuals in Wisconsin that can be subject to special bulletin notification. The first one, as I mentioned um, before, it's anybody who has uh, two or more separate offenses, what we call a two-strike offender. Um, also, we have uh, any individual who is committed under the Chapter 980 or the Sexually Violent Person Law who will be placed in the community under supervised release. So that's, a, that's not a prison term, but that's a civil commitment at our Sandridge facility. And after that person, if the judge grants a supervised release, then that, would, that person would be subject to a chapter or a special bulletin notification. And the department also has the ability to identify discretionary, as discretion to identify other individuals based on their risk to reoffend, regardless of if they're a registrant and how many strikes they have. Um, the level of notification, there's three levels. The first level is law enforcement notification. Every offender, whether they're a special bulletin notification offender or a registrant, their information is made available to law enforcement. It's available on the Sex Offender Registry Program website. Um, so that would be a level one. Level, level two notification is a targeted notification. So what that might entail is if it's a certain neighborhood, uh, law enforcement, the probation parole agents might go door-to-door, -door, hand out flyers. Um, some of you may have experienced that before or not or heard of that. Um, but it's really targeted for the neighborhood in which that person is going to live. The third level, which most people are, are familiar with, is a, is a community notification meeting. And during the meeting, it's the, the purpose of the meeting is informational. Um, it's really to talk about who is the offender, uh, what can you do to protect yourself, not only about this offender that's known, but also other offenders who are unknown, um, and what is their supervision going to entail? What is the probation and parole agent going to be doing in regards to how they're watching this person? So the purpose of the, of the level three notification is there's four aspects. The first one is flexibility. The law attempts to provide flexibility and discretion to both the agency of jurisdiction, the police, um, or, and law enforcement authorities in making notification decisions and conducting notification activities. Balance, the law attempts to maintain balance between community protection, the public's need to be informed, and to create an environment that enhances the offender, offender's likelihood for successful rehabilitation and reintegration into the community. And let me catch a hit on a lot of those points in that, again, as the Department of Corrections, we're trying to balance community safety, with providing people with the opportunity to be successful. And as Eric, meant, Eric said earlier, success, not committing new crimes, not creating new victims. But having that stability of a residence is critical, and having the ability to be able to come back into the community and, and participate and be a, um, a constructive member of society is also critical. Um, sensitivity to victims. The law seeks to be sensitive to the needs of victims, including potential impact of their offenders released to the community. 
the effects on victims and their loved ones of community notification activities and the presence of offenders in the community. The law contains specific safeguards to reduce the possibility of re-victimization. The last thing we want to do in a, in a community notification meeting is re-victimize the victim by having the perpetrator have the information out there. So we try to be as, as sensitive as we can in respect to that. Um, the last thing, the fourth thing, is enhanced public protection. The purpose of the community notification is not to impose additional punishment on an offender, but to increase offender accountability through enhanced information sharing within and between the criminal justice system and community. So again, it's not a punishment. The individual has served their time in prison. Now they're out on some um, either supervision. Some individuals have maximum discharge. That means they don't have any supervision left. So we want to be able to provide that information to the public, but also give that person an opportunity so they're not punished further. So that's the difference. So we have several individuals who are registrants who are not subject to special bulletin notifications. So the question is, well, how come nobody told me that this person was moving here? Um, there might not have been a legal requirement for us to do that. However, as Eric mentioned, we do have a feature on our website that does allow community members to receive notifications for any offender if they, if they sign up for that feature that's on the website. Um, the next question was a little more difficult. Um, why are so many sex offenders proportionally placed in Madison compared with the surrounding areas? And I had a hard time with that one um, just because on how we keep our data. The Sex Offender Registry is a residence, is an address program. So we keep addresses and zip codes. The municipalities, the zip codes cross between one zip code to another. So we can't really get data on this many people live in the city of Madison, this many people live in the city of Monona. We have some good estimates about that, and you can see that on the website if you punch in you know, 53703, I think, which is a downtown area um, compared to a Sun Prairie address or something like that. Um, we, pr we do have proportionally more sex offenders who live in the city, but Madison is also the biggest population within Dane County as well. So I don't know as far as proportion to proportion how that is. But why do people live in the city of Madison as compared to other municipalities? They have access to transportation. They have access to jobs. They have access to other resources and housing. And all those things are critical in, in a person's, you know, basic, not only their basic living needs, but in, in terms of not reoffending and not creating new victims. Um, how many municipalities, cities, county, villages, or towns have ordinances restricting locations of sex offenders? That's really a great question. And it changes every day. There's no statewide law. There is one um, uh, a draft legislation that's pending statewide that would that could impact um, create a statewide law. Um, Eric talked about the Iowa law and the California law a little bit, um, but we don't really know. There's about 176 that we're aware of, different municipalities, and that could be a small township of about 200 people, or the city of Milwaukee just passed a, a sex offender resident, residency ordinance. So we try to keep track of those uh, with the sex offender registry program when they come in. I think the other thing that's important is no two uh, ordinances are the same. They're different. 2,000 feet, 1,500 feet. This is a school. It's a library. It's very complicated. And it's very complicated for us to try to differentiate who, who is affected and who isn't. But it's probably even more complicated for the individuals who are subject to the ordinance because a lot of times they just don't know. They don't know, and they're not, um, 
going on a map and trying to do a Google to see, okay, am I in a mile, a mile and a half? Am I okay? Am I not okay? Again, a lot of people are just trying to survive. Um, uh, does an investigation of an apartment where a sex offender would be placed consist of? You can't see this very well on the, on the screen, but this is a form that we have in the Department of Corrections. It's a sex offender residency assessment form. So what this is, all probation and parole agents, before they will, um, before when a, if an individual who's convicted of a sex offense is placed on probation or released on prison and they propose a place to live, the agent will go to the house. They'll go through a list of things um, to look at. They're looking at who's in the house, who are they living with. Um, they're looking to see if there is an ordinance in that community. Um, where, who is the victim? Do they know the victim? Do they know where the victim is residing? Um, they'll check with the Department of um, Children and Families. So what that is, we do a couple of different um, date, licensed daycare checks. And it's important is that a lot of people do in-home license or unlicensed daycare. We really have no way of checking that. We can only check uh, daycares that are licensed. Um, and then other considerations. There's an on-site inspection. There's often, we're looking at other things in the neighborhood, um, if there's children, schools, all those sorts of things. All those things are kind of graded on a different scale depending on the offender and what their history is. So one thing doesn't necessarily exclude a residence, but it doesn't include a residence either. It doesn't automatically accept it. A lot of what we're looking at is not that how can we exclude this residence, but is there a way that we can supervise this person effectively and safely if they're there. And we have a lot of tools for that. We have uh, global positioning, tracking, and um, electronic monitoring, and then uh, frequent contacts by the agent, um, working closely with law enforcement and other things. So we try to see, will this place work and is it safe? Um, and again, that's where it can, sometimes we, we find ourselves in between that emotional community reaction of why is this person moving in next to me why is this not why are you putting my family at risk when we're not obviously trying to put any families at risk we're trying to balance the needs of the offender rehabilitation of the offender with their ability to be successful in the community so again there's a lot of other things we look at if there's drugs and alcohol in the control, uh, home computers cameras um, sexually explicit materials children's toys family photos weapons um, a lot of things you take for granted, but um, the agents do do a thorough inspection of the house and the neighborhood. Um, and that was, yeah, do DOC official or probation parole visit the home? Yes. Um, do they talk to nearby re residents? Sometimes we talk to landlords. We talk to landlords a lot in Madison, and, and sometimes that prevents somebody from getting a house, but we try to be open as the best we can. Um, and it does it include noting nearby places where children congregate. And again, we look at that, but then what we're also looking at is, is there ability for us to supervise that person safely in that area, even though there are children that might be nearby? Um, so the last, or next couple of questions. Would an, would, would an ordinance like this one create a large residential population concentration of people with sex offenses? I don't know, but probably. Because if you limit the places where people can live, then there's going to be more people in those areas. And um, that's probably likely. And as Eric mentioned, in the states where we have the data, 
it appears that that has increased the number of homeless offenders um, or undocumented, I guess. I don't know if that's the right term or not, but people going underground, people not telling us where they're staying or lying about where they're staying. Um, what are the positive and negative effects of this type of ordinance? Again, um, Eric talked a lot about that. Linda Ketchum talked about that. Again, we have not seen any research that suggests that these types of ordinances work. It appears to be a feel-good, um, but does that really impact community safety? That's really the question I think that you have to answer for yourself. And Eric, I encourage you to uh, look at the, um, try to find any research. If, if you have, we'd be happy to look at that as well. So again, we, um, what we see, what we've seen, what we've experienced in Green Bay, some of the larger areas where we've had ordinances is offenders have gone underground. They've stopped telling us where they are. They're providing us false information of where they're staying or they're moving frequently to try to find loopholes within the, within the ordinance so they can, they can have a roof over their heads. So, so with that, I don't know if there's any other. Open up for comments or questions. Okay. Okay, um, thank you guys for coming. I want to also mention that we have um, Kate Smith and, Mar and Mara Paulson from the attorney's office who helped write the ordinance, as well as a couple of our officers here. So um, what we'll do is, in order to ask folks questions, make sure that you push the button on your mic. We'll recognize you from up here. Um, folks who are allowed it, because we have a lot of various folks here tonight, um, alders, commissioners, PSRC folks, you're, you're allowed to ask questions. Um, and so obviously the public comment was earlier in this evening. So, all right, everybody got it? All right, any questions? <clears throat> no, can't. Let's turn off the mic. Um, one is, um, I know from working in this, in, with people with mental health issues, and some of them were sex offenders, that oftentimes you are limited in terms of placement regardless. Now there is no restriction, and you're limited now in terms of placement already. Um, so how do you combat that issue? Because sometimes, even though you say that um, you're looking to at, at the area. Sometimes you have no other alternative but the one place because people are reluctant to take people for whatever reason. So how is that handled? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we have a lot of barriers now with mm -hmm. trying to find people suitable housing or trying to help people find their own suitable housing. Uh, we do have some programs. We have some halfway house beds in in Madison, in Dane County, we have some transitional living. Um, some of those exclude um, sex offender registrants, special bulletin. Some of them we're able to place there. Um, but the spots are limited, and the programs are short in duration, usually 30 to 90 days. So there's often a lot of turnover, and it puts the offender in a bad spot as far as needing to try to find something that isn't there. So the agents work really closely with the offender. They try to work with landlords. There's a lot of pressure on landlords um, with, within the communities. Mm -hmm. um, they feel worried if there's a meeting. And this is anecdotal. I don't have any real stats or anything to back this up, but we've, we've seen this. We've experienced where a landlord has said, well, rent to this person. And this is a lot of times these are individuals who are working, who have money. It's not a question of, uh, the Department of Corrections trying to support something. It's they have the funds to 
rent, um, but they can't find somebody who will rent to them. Mm -hmm. um, and you know whether that's discriminatory or not, I don't know what all the laws are, but it's a barrier that a lot of people face. I've had clients that had the funds, as you say, but people would not rent to them because of their history. And then I have um, my other question is, you also said that the majority of offenses are people they know or within the, the home or the family. But yet, to me, maybe maybe I'm, I misheard, but it seemed like there was a conflict in that you also said that you wanted them to, that they, you're working to get them back to stable families. So to me, when you think about the victims being, you know, somebody they knew and perhaps family members, but yet you're working on this. So is that a, is there a difference there? Or there is I? a little bit, but okay. um, I think if I understand correctly, there's a, there's a couple things. If sometimes the, um, the victim is a family member, mm -hmm. and that, that puts us in a bad position because we want to be able to protect the victim, obviously, and we generally, if that victim is still in the home, we would not let that offender live in the home with them until they achieve some sort of level of treatment um, and that we had a reintegration and reunification plan in place. Um, but it's a very, it's a difficult challenge um, when that damage has been done as far as that assault to try to bring those individuals and then ensure that safety of that victim. So that is a, that is a big challenge. Okay. And then the residency restrictions also prohibit an individual from going back to say their parents' house. Maybe the victim isn't in the home. The victim is uh, somebody else known to the family, uh, a relative, etc. And this individual is coming out of, out of the institution or, and, and wants to move back to their family and they have a home. So the victim's not necessarily there. We're saying that that, stamp, that family, that stable family support, uh, brothers, sisters, parents, or whatever, are important for the success of, of that individual on supervision. Okay. And then my last question, I don't know if you have the answer, but um, is there any studies on the impact that this registry has on the families? Because the sex offender might be the one on the register, yeah. but I think this impacts the whole family. Yeah, I don't know if there is any studies, but I, I think that is a great point because um, it is out there. Mm -hmm. It's out there for people to see, and, and we know that um, children of incarcerated adults just in general have a very difficult time um, avoiding ending up in trouble on their own or um, and then this on top of it is also a, can be a big barrier for people and a stigma. And it has an impact sometimes when individuals a residence, a family member might say, I, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's the impact of, of, of having their information presented on the website or whatever. So that is one of the aspects that the department has to deal with. But sometimes it's for other reasons. That, that person may have bridges with parents or relatives or aunts or uncles, and that's that's why they don't want them coming to the residence. An individual might propose a residency at a relative's house and say, no, I'm not comfortable with that. But there's a number of reasons for that. Could you tell him? Because I've got the microphone. Sure. Hold on, I have a point of info. Okay, so 
first uh, Denise has been waiting as well and um, also um, sir if you're <laughs> the, if you're going to answer questions um, you, we need you to come to the mic so that it does actually get recorded so I'd rather not have you yell at folks <laughs> so Denise and then and Corinne if you have another question just buzz back in no, that was my point. I, I was told that City Channel was recording this, and in order for the public to be able to hear this, you need to speak into the mic. as a sex offender, but their crime, even from that list, it has nothing to do with um, offending somebody sexually. And is there a way that this registry distinguish that out? Or? Um, you have to look. You have to look up the information and, and look at the crime. Um, the only thing that comes off the top of my head of and I don't think I don't know if this is what you're saying as far as somebody who's on the registry that might not have actually something sexual uh, connotation is, is we do have a registry requirement for kidnapping. Yeah. Um, and that may not have any type of um, sexual, but it is included in the in, in the law. Um, there are hands off offenses that are uh, require registration. Um, possession of child pornography, for example, is a hands-off offense. There's no uh, physical victim, but obviously there was a victim of that, of that um, whoever was the subject of those photos and images. Okay, um, so I guess my question was about um, density in neighborhoods, because that kind of seemed to be the implication of how this um, came to be proposed here in Madison is that there was a neighborhood um, that felt like there were a lot of offenders placed in their neighborhood, um, maybe out of proportion to other neighborhoods in Madison. So for instance, this particular neighborhood, um, as opposed to uh, upper class west side neighborhood, would not get the same amount of uh, offenders placed. So do you you look at that like we're placing so many offenders in this particular neighborhood that the density is getting too high. How do you kind of try and balance uh, where you're placing people so that it's equitable? So that's a great question. We, uh, the, what it really comes down to is affordable housing, I, in, in my opinion. Um, there are, you know, we don't, we don't generally go out and actively search for a residence that a the agents for the offender we you know so that placement question is always kind of a difficult one because um, it's not always a placement what typically is is that the individual says hey I found a place to live and then the agent will go and, and check it um, check it out and then we will approve it or if there's some issues we'll say yeah, I don't think that's going to work or yeah we think we can work with that so that placement piece is kind of a, a, um, a tough word but it, I know it gets used quite frequently the issue though is is affordable housing we we have uh, registrants who live in very affluent neighborhoods that number though there's not a lot of rentals available in those neighborhoods though or rentals that are available for reasonable cost 
So unfortunately, some areas where there is affordable housing tends to have more population or density. And we unfortunately have that across the board with all of our offender population, not just sex offenders. So one thing we, we do try to do is we will look at that. Um, again, sometimes there's that emotional piece with it versus a reality where a density may be perceived if you look on the map, but then again, these individuals might not be that close to each other. Um, they might be in multiple buildings within a complex, but not all living in the same one. Um, sometimes, though, offenders, if they find a place, they'll talk, hey, this person is renting. People need a place to live, so they'll go into that place. So we do try to look at it. We know that there is, um, there can be some community out, a backlash if too many people end up in one area, one house. Um, but it's really, it comes down to affordable housing and trying to, people trying to find affordable housing that they can stay. Thank you very much for speaking with us this evening. This has been very informative. And my question is really a, a point of clarification. Um, so if I have this right, that there is no evidence that these residency restriction laws um, actually reduce the risk of increased recidivism in terms of sex offenses, and in fact they may increase the risk with respect to offending in, in the future. Um, so that, that was very eye-opening to me. Um, and I just want to make sure that I have this right because I can imagine that someone um, in a given neighborhood says that may be true with respect to, to the city as a whole or the state as a whole, but at least they're not going to be reoffending in my neighborhood. Right. But what I, what I, as I understand the evidence that you presented is that there actually is no increased risk to children by having a, a former sex offender living near children. We haven't found any um, that, that, that I'm, I'm aware of. I think what we try to stress is that there's known individuals and there's unknown individuals. And we try to give, in, you know, when we do these types of presentations, a lot of times what we talk about is safe behaviors. And people get that in the, in the school systems and things like that. But really talking to your kids about what's okay, what's not okay, and how do, you, how do you talk about that? Where do you go with a trusted adult? And really what we found is that's the most effective way to prevent new sexual assaults. Um, there, again, if somebody can find some evidence that these do um, prevent uh, new sexual assaults, we would be happy to look at them because I'm sure we would want to reevaluate our position, but thank you. Um, about there's, there's no more recidivism if, if they're residing around schools or community centers. What is the recidivism rate for sex offenders who are under your supervision? Well, that's a great question, and I don't have an answer for that. I don't, there's not a, a number. I think nationwide, but we can get some information back to you for that. I mean, if they're under DOC supervision in a given county and they reoffend. Well, it, and that's because um, recidivism is kind of complicated because we could talk about recidivism as far as somebody being arrested and placing place in jail. We could talk about recidivism being um, somebody who's convicted of a new crime 
or somebody who's just sent back to prison on a probation and parole violation. I mean primarily reoffending a, a child. So um, she has that data, but I don't. So, um, so um, Lori, I don't. I don't have that data with me. So Thank I'm sorry. You. I, if I just want to make a, I want to make a quick um, point of info for folks who are on the PSRC. So just to make sure that we up here don't miss anybody while we're messing with the technology. If you could come to the second row, make sure that the, so that we can kind of easily identify folks. If, if any of you who are out beyond the second row um, are in PSRC, so. Um, I'm Karen Reese. I, I am speaking as an individual, but I work for NEMIS, Center for Urban Leadership Development, Research and Program Evaluation. And there's been a number of studies with um, approximately 10,000 offenders, separate studies together from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and also a very big study in Canada from the Solicitor General's Office. And the recidivism rates are depending, they depend um, on the certain offense, whether it was a rape of an adult, sexual assault of a male child, sexual assault of a female child. But overall, the recidivism rates are, or the reoffense rates for sex offenders are between 5 and 13 percent in general, which is, which is much lower than most other crimes. So on the Department of Corrections website, we have um, recidivism data. Um, I don't have that with me, I'm sorry, um, today, but if you go to WIDOC, uh, YDOC, um, and there is a link to recidivism and they have it by county. That is individuals who have been released for, from prison who have been convicted of a new crime. So they'll show that, that rate on our website. Uh, thank you again for the uh, education. It's been very helpful for me. Uh, just following up a little bit on, on Sean's question, a little bit on this concentration heard the name Nehemiah and working with the Nehemiah Corporation. I'd like to know, does the state or the city, are we working together in terms of providing resources to these people coming back into the community? And is this a program that's designed to do that? And what are the benefits of that program? Sure, I, I think I can try to answer that. So as a state, as the Department of Corrections, what we do is we, if we identify a need, we will put out um, uh, request for contracts. So housing is a big need. Um, we've had um, a relationship contracts with the Nehemiah for offender housing, reentry housing. Um, Nehemiah also has gone out and done, and I don't want to speak for them, but they've also tried to buy some of their own housing for the individuals who have the ability to pay so they can pay their own way. Um, they do, in my opinion, uh, they do a great job. Uh, they have a mission as far as um, helping wanting to help people who are coming back into the community, um, giving them some tools and giving them some, some support within the community. Um, so that's our relationship. It's a contractual relationship, but they're also a community relationship. I know that Nehemiah uh, Corporation has a lot of affiliations with the city, um, with the faith-based network, network that's in, in Madison, surrounding Madison, and so they do a lot of networking and, and work with the other agencies um, and, and people that are out there. So that's our relationship. And then my second follow-up question is, are you or is the uh, department aware of any statewide legislation because of all of these communities are creating their own 
ordinances and so forth. It's kind of looking at the map that I'm looking at and creating an island here uh, in Madison for uh, the release of uh, back into the community uh, for these individuals. Do you know if there's any legislation being proposed or thought about statewide to try to limit this or control this a little bit? Yes, there is. Um, I believe uh, uh, Joel Cleefish has proposed some draft legislation um, and for statewide law that would try to clean up some of these patchwork of different ordinances that are across, you know, 178-odd ordinances that are across the state. Um, I'm not sure where that's at in the legislature. I believe that there is, um, you know, it's still within the work. It's not part of the budget. It's a separate piece of legislation. But obviously uh, it's got a lot of traction um, as a result of some of the ordinances that have been passed in southeast Wisconsin. Thank you. So um, I know that one of the, one of the concerns that um, had come up is that with all these townships and cities putting in um, these ordinances that um, sex offenders would come to Madison because they'd be able to find housing. They would be able, you know, to live here, I guess. Um, and so the concern was that Madison would become like kind of a safe haven almost for sex offenders. Um, so that's kind of the first part. How would you address that issue, and is that really what's happening here? Um, and then also just for the, I mean, would the 2,000 feet ordinance, would that really, if, you know, Madison is going to become a, you know, safe haven for sex offenders, as I've heard some people say, um, would that 2,000 foot ordinance really, I guess, do anything or prevent that? Uh, well, Two things. So I'll try to answer the first part of your question. The um, I, I want to. I don't know if we we talked a lot about this, but we have registrants who are on supervision who have a probation and parole agent, and registrants who have discharged. So they no longer have any sort of time. They don't have to report to an agent. They're, they've served their entire period of probation and parole, and they're discharged. So those individuals. Um, can live wherever they want. There isn't anybody saying you can't live here or there. They may be subject to a ordinance from where they're from, and they may move to Madison because they want to move to Madison. They may move to Florida, you know, depending, and or they may be, feel they're forced to move to an area that doesn't have a residency ordinance. But we really can't say to that individual, you can't live here because we don't have any jurisdiction over them. The only thing we have is the resident, uh, the uh, sex offender residency program where they're supposed to tell us where they're living. I'm living at this address, this is my phone number, you know, the, that, that sort of information. Um, so as far as the 2,000 feet goes, um, it wouldn't, the, the ordinances with or without an ordinance wouldn't really affect people who are no longer on supervision. Um, what it would do as far as, what we do as far as community corrections and probation and parole goes is that if somebody was from another area, a part of the state, and they wanted to move to Madison, they would have to ask and get permission to move to Madison. So we would have to review the residents and approve the residents. Um, and again, that's that, the, our checklist that we go through. Um, and we look at that very closely. Um, it's, it's a possibility. It has happened. Um, but typically, if it does happen, it's generally because there's a family member that lives 
in the area and they're moving in with a family member. So we might consider that as a possibility. But this has been a, um, a thing that we've been struggling with statewide because as one area passes an ordinance, people are getting out, they're trying to look for any housing option that they can find, which might mean they're asking to live in another part of state or out of state, um, move out of state. So, But those have to be approved ahead of time. And um, we do take a hard look at those, especially people who are coming in, whether what resources do they have and what resources they don't have. And, and there are a lot of people who would like to live in Madison, but that doesn't necessarily mean we would approve that plan. So, thank you. Thank you. Hello. Isn't it true that colonies uh, can't uh, get on Section 8 or, or uh, low-income housing? Isn't that part of the problem? Um, yes, and I'm not an expert on the Section 8 housing laws or anything like that, but there are some prohibitions for people with certain felony convictions about being able to be on Section 8 housing. Um, the other thing we face, and this is not just with sex offenders but with all offenders, is they might have family members who have secured a residence in Section 8 housing, but by having that person who's coming home from prison move in with them, that jeopardizes their housing. And so we could, you know, by that allowing that person to live with them, we could put the whole family out. Um, if that if that other um, significant other is and or children or whoever are are impacted by that person staying with them and and impacting their ability to get the housing assistance. Okay. Um, why can't you keep them in prison instead of just letting them out? Yeah, that's a great question. Why don't they just stay in prison? I think that would probably make some people feel a lot safer. Um, but I think there's a stat. Um, and I don't have the source, but it's like 98% of the sex offenders are going to be released. Um, people don't get life terms for sex offenses. Most people, almost everybody who's in prison for a sex offense is going to be released at some point, sometime. And so that's based on our laws, the state laws, based on how long, the degree of felony, what the exposure is, or how much time that person can spend in prison. And so most people get out. Um, if we did have life sentences, we would probably have to build a lot more prisons and pay a lot more money. Okay. Uh, and the third question, what should be done if we don't pass all students like this? In regards to what? And in regards to, um, to appeasing families, um, what should be done? Well, I think from the Department of Corrections standpoint, what we have done and what we'll continue to do is work closely with law enforcement, work closely with the communities, and try to educate as much as we can, any opportunity that we can to educate. Um, we'll try to work with the other community agencies and members to try to develop suitable housing options for people that are not in a density cluster. Um, hopefully uh, try to work with landlords um, so landlords can feel comfortable renting to people um, and and collect rent and people that have the ability to pay and we'll just we'll try to keep um, being as transparent as we can be as far as what the information that we have on the website and how we supervise people. Okay, thank you. Is this a time when we can ask questions of staff as well or should we yes. finish with our questions of yeah, DOC you first? Can, you can ask it of the okay. folks here. Um, so you mentioned having a contractual relationship with housing providers. What is the nature of that contract? What do you contract with them to do? Uh, which are you talking specifically about Nehemiah? So you talked about having a contract with Nehemiah. Yeah, we have a um, facility on the east side. Um, it's uh, emergency or short-term housing. 
um, and that's the current contract that we have with them. So I'm sorry, I'm just trying to understand. Um, so these aren't like market landlord. These aren't facilities that someone coming out of prison just pays rent to stay in. Is this like a halfway no, house type uh, of no, situation? No, this is sort. Well, we have a variety of housing programs. We have halfway house programs, which are typically 90 days or longer, and they focus on a program aspect. And so we have contracts with Attic Correctional Services, with ARC. Um, mm -hmm. ARC program, um, and we have, that's all of them. Um, we also have emergency housing, or I'm sorry, transitional living placements, which are typically 90 days. Um, again, we have contracts with Attic Correctional Services and with ARC. Those are competitive bids, so we say this is what we're looking for. Companies bid on them, and they are awarded a contract based on a competitive bid. We also have the ability, depending on how much money it is, to do some shorter-term um, contracting. We have all of our um, contracting laws that we have to follow. But we have the ability to spend money on housing. So, for example, if a, if a person needed a, didn't have any place to stay and we could contract for a short-term with a, with a motel, so maybe a week or two for somebody to transition if they needed something. That's the type of contract that we have with Nehemiah. It's short-term. It's 30 days. Um, at the facility they have right now, we don't have any um, registered sex offenders in that facility. That's one of the agreements that we've had with them. Um, and so that is nature. So it's primarily utilized for people who are coming out of prison. It's really short term. It's only a couple of weeks that they can stay there, and then they have to transition into something else. Um, so that's pretty much But no contracts for long-term housing? Long-term, the longest-term Housing is our halfway house programs, which are 90 to 100 days. Okay, I'm, I'm just trying to get at what you can and can't control. And for example, if you could, if you have, if you contract, if DOC is paying for longer term housing, if part of that contract process could be, um, part of the bidding process could be uh, a winning bid would provide a housing that's not in an already concentrated area where there are a large number of. Ex-offenders, but you, you're saying you don't, you don't, don't contract for those um, kind of services. We don't have any specific um, contracts for sex offender registrants. Um, what we have is, and as far as a longer term, you know, most of our contracts are intended to be a transition. So either um, for a halfway house, for example, the idea is that there's a program area need and that person would complete that program area need while they're in the halfway house and then transition to their own housing. Um, what we would like to see is, um, like I mentioned earlier, we have several offenders that can, that, that can afford housing. They can, they're working, they're um, out in the community, they're, they're doing fine, um, but they have that problem where landlords won't, won't rent to them. So we, we can look to, I think, to go back and answer, I think, your question. When we contract, we can look at density issues and see, you know, as far as if we have one facility in one area, would we put another facility right near that one? And um, we don't necessarily have that. Um, we have different types of facilities in different areas, but we do try to spread them out so they're, so they're throughout, the, um, throughout the county. Okay, and I have a question uh, question for MPD. I don't know if you're able to answer. The, are you able to answer a question about the core teams at all? Anyone? Well, I can try to answer them, or, or we, can, we can answer them 
Well, I'd, I'd like to know about their internal decision-making processes and, again, trying to get at this issue of concentration. And when you do your reviews and you do your um, risk assessments, is that something that's already taken into consideration or is it really everything, all of these placement issues really just based on the availability of where No, it's not. Um, the, um, when those issues are all taken into consideration, what is, who is the person, what did they do, what's their risk to reoffend? what are their, um, is there a target population that they have offended against in the past, and what structure as far as our supervision would go, would, do we have in place to try to prevent new victims? And so the residence itself is looked at. Where is the residence? What, what's it all about? What's it look like on a map? How many other people are there? Um, those things are discussed at the core team meetings. Um, there's a lot of information that gets focused on who is this person and what did they do, and then what have they done since. So, for example, have they completed a treatment program while they've been incarcerated? Um, all those things are discussed at length in the meetings, and they are used by law enforcement then to make a, rec or make a determination as to is this something we want to um, provide, how much notification at what level, you know, just in the Internet, a targeted notification or a full-blown community notification. So the police do take a, um, they do um, take all that information into consideration as far as the notification. But again, the notification is informational. It's meant to say, here's this person, he's, he or she is going to be in this area, and um, we want you to know about it, and that's why we're providing you the information. Okay, I'm, I'm really struggling with us as a community saying no to something in such a big way without at the same time saying yes to have, having a positive alternative for where people can live and creating really the, an exclusionary, um, exclusionary policy without at the same time trying to address the needs of the people who need housing. And that's what I'm personally really, really struggling with. Um, and it is, it's deep, it has to do with, you know, criminal, you know, federal housing policy, the availability of uh, housing in our community, landlords who are willing or not, I mean, it's based on the market is what we're saying. And um, the only, the, the tool that communities have come up with are sledgehammers that really don't help anyone. Yet, um, there was this situation that spurred the, the this proposal um, by former Anita Weir, I am her successor. I was at that neighborhood meeting. Your staff member was there, and really, it was tough. You know, you remember it. It was really tough, and it seems like some of that process, some of that process broke down. That communication process, that those relationships um, weren't really tended to properly, and it really caused um, uh, an uproar. The result was that. Relationships got rebuilt a little bit. The landlord decided, okay, really, maybe this isn't a, an appropriate placement. But it was the landlord that had to make the decision. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of struggling with what, as a, as a community, how do we take care of the needs of, of all our people um, and be fair about it and equitable about it? And um, I don't know, I guess I would just urge my colleagues on the council as we're thinking about affordable housing and housing policy in the city, and, and I know we have some county colleagues here too, that you know, we really think about all of all of these issues and all of the people and their situations that that need um, housing. Um, 
to Marcy a question about the, the council did pass a um, an ordinance about child safety zones um, where sexual offenders can and can't loiter um, six or seven years ago. Could you speak to that, um, what that ordinance is about and, and what it covers? Do you have that ordinance? I, um, that was a long time ago. I'm sorry, I don't remember the details. But basically it means that registered Registered sex offenders, I believe, they cannot be in, in a certain area, like it was a park and other areas where children congregate and approach children and, and try to entice children. It was more of a safety zone, but they can be in the area. They just can't approach and enti try to entice a child to come to their car, or try to engage in a conversation with a child without the permission of the parent. Um, sorry, I'm just seeing if I have a copy of that specific ordinance. I think Kate is looking for it. I'm sorry to spring that on. Yeah, sorry. That was I wrote it a long time ago. You got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so what the ordinance says is it's unlawful for any individual convicted of a serious child sex offense to loiter in a child safety zone in a manner and under circumstances manifesting the purpose of inducing, enticing, or luring a child from the child's location. And then we went on and said, among the circumstances that could be considered in determining whether such purpose is, mani is manifested is the person frequents either on foot or by motor vehicle a known child safety zone. And then we define child safety zone as 250 feet from a school, a daycare center, um, performance art space, or playgrounds. Um, another thing to show their purpose is whether they repeatedly beckon or attempt to contact a child without the permission of the child's parent, guardian, or custodian, and whether they take flight upon the appearance of a police officer. Um, the ordinance goes on to further says that a person can't be arrested for it without the police officer giving them the opportunity to explain their behavior. And that's, the, that's the ordinance that was written in 2008. So that's just about behavior, not about where they can get. Yes, that's yeah. specifically to the behavior of trying to entice a child. So right now, child sex offenders can be in any place within the city, and there's no ordinance. Okay. Um, is there a difference between the way women sex offenders are treated and men? And where do the women sex offenders live? Um, in regards to the law, no. I mean, if they're subject to registry, then they're on the registry. If they're subject to special bulletin notification, two-strike or, or any of the other, the other two criteria, they are not treated any differently because the law is a law. It doesn't say men only or women only. Um, the women uh, offenders that we have have barriers as well. Um, some of the programming that we have as far as housing, uh, ARC Community Services uh, focuses towards female uh, populations, and so we do utilize their services, but um, it's, it's many of the same, same barriers. The number is much smaller um, percentage-wise, obviously, um, or I don't know if it's obvious or not, but the number of female sex offenders that we have is, is very small compared to the number of male sex offenders we have.
Do we have any other questions? I have a few, but for folks out there, do you have any questions? No. All right. So <clears throat> I think this already got answered, but this is for the attorneys as well, or for folks from the attorney's office as well. The language is specific to child sex offenders, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, then this one's for the officers. Uh, what are, are you guys seeing anything out in the field in terms of where the, when these folks are placed back as far as recurrence or recidivism? Uh, are, are we seeing what, – what do the rates look like here in Madison, like for you guys in the field? And See, off the top of my head, I don't recall – I don't recall anything. You know, we do have analysts, and we can try and get that information. But it hasn't something that really popped up on no, my radar screen. Now, I would have the same answer in terms of um, not very frequent, because I'm sure some of that would definitely be newsworthy, and we would all know about it. Sure. It, um, definitely it's, it's not zero, but it's, again, we don't have good good data or good statistics on, on that. I, I appreciate the willingness to uh, take that question. <laughs> um, let's see, for the DSC folks, um, what are we looking at in terms of racial disparities um, in enforcement and, and uh, I guess how this is, how this is policed and, and also what you're seeing in, in, the, in terms of outcomes, what are we seeing as far as racial disparities? As far as sex offender registry or placement or? In, in terms of, uh, yeah, in terms of uh, SOs and then the placement. Well, I can't, I can't really speak if, as far as statistics, as far as disparities in um, sex offenders. Um, just anecdotally, um, the offenders that we supervise, offenders that are on the registry are all socioeconomic, all racial backgrounds. Um, I don't, I, I don't want to say, but I don't necessarily um, know if there are differences um, as much as the other uh, general offender population with the, in regards to sex of, uh, individuals with sex offender convictions. Okay, so put it maybe a little more bluntly, do you guys have access to statistics on race as far as the arrests for this go and convictions? We have statistics as far as the registrants what their race, what their reported race is, yes. Okay. But I don't have those tonight, but sure. we do. That is, that is, correct there? That is part of the mm -hmm. registry? Yes. Okay. Uh, would you guys be able to send that to our folks in the DCR? In the as far as Dane County? We can do by county or zip code, just so. Probably just Madison. Yeah, the Madison, Madison zip codes. Okay. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see what we can do and we can, if we have clarification. We'll. Okay. That would be great. Thank you. Um, and then also, sort of as a point of information, we did. Uh, I was bugging Alyssa for the history on this. So this has not been referred to housing, and I have quite. I have questions about that are similar to Rebecca's about um, what this does in terms of housing. Um, if we wanted to refer it at any point over to the housing committee, I I would be in favor of that. So I just wanted to register my opinion as far as that goes. Right, that's all I got. If I could just add one final thought. Um, what I did not do tonight is I did not have our legal counsel review the proposed ordinance. I know that in other areas, um, ordinances were passed, and we had a laundry list of kind of legal questions. So I would, um, 
if you'd like us to do that now or if you would wait or I guess I would ask if you'd wait to have us review it because a lot of times there was uh, an, for example um, if we had a halfway house would there be an exclusion for that halfway house um, if you know the a place that was in existence for some period of time um, could there be other exclusionary things built in as far as the 2,000 foot um, so there, um, oftentimes there's a lot of questions, and I don't have those questions because I didn't have our legal counsel review it prior to this meeting, but I, I would just offer that as an opportunity or some feedback to, to help um, to try to avoid um, issues down the road. I think we'd see that as a relevant piece of information, so thank you. Thank you. All right, so the item as we have it in front of us um, is... It was just referred here. I don't have it down as necessarily an action item. Um, do you want to clarify the rules on this in terms of um, do we have to take an action on this tonight? No, you do not have to. Okay. Thank you. Um, but if anyone does want to make a motion, um, feel free to fire away at it. Otherwise, we'll move on to um, item number six, or uh, Judge Koval has been very patiently waiting. <laughs> 